Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. And he hath quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin, where in times past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversations in time past in lust of, the, of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sin, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Jesus or Christ Jesus. For by grace you are saved through faith, and not and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And may we be blessed by the reading of God's word this morning. You may be seated. I've been thinking a lot about this passage in light of what happened this week with the shooting that happened down in Florida. I've just been mulling over this passage in light of that. How is it that there's all this evil in the world and so often we're surprised by it? We're shocked when we turn on the news and we see the evil in this world, but this passage tells us we ought not to be shocked. And this passage also tells us that we're no different than that young man. That's that's terrifying. Let me say that again. We're no different than that young man, apart from Christ. And we'll see that in this passage this morning. If you weren't here last week, I would highly recommend you to listen to Brother Frank's passage last week as he finished the first chapter of Ephesians. He did an amazing job of, uh, of walking us through that passage. And it's a setup for this week and this passage. I want to look at three things this morning. The first one is man's condition, the second is God's compassion, and the last is God's call. What, what is our condition? Paul's going to set out what our condition is, and this is how we're no different than anything that we see on the news. All the tragic events, we are no different than them. So let's look at our condition. What is man's condition before Christ? What was your condition before Christ? Maybe you don't know Christ. This is your condition this morning. This is a terrifying passage, these first three verses. If you're not a believer, this, is, this ought to terrify all of us. And my prayer is that it will also convict us to, to be reminded that there's men and women all over the world that are dying apart from Jesus Christ. And this passage tells us their fate. And my hope is that we really believe these first three verses are true but the hope comes in the next three verses and then that pushes us to do something in verse 10 
But if we don't believe in verse 1, 2, and 3, we'll continue to sit and do nothing with what God has given to us. So look, let's look at our condition. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Man's condition. <clears throat> it says, We were dead in the trespasses and sin which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in its passions, for the flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. This explains what happened this week. Does it not? These three verses capture what was going on in the heart of that young man. He is a son of disobedience, God's word tells us. And he's dead in his trespasses. He's dead in his sin. So he, he had no obligation but to go on sinning. That's true. For you and for me. So the first thing that we see, our condition is this. We are dead. In our sin, in our trespasses, Paul tells us, you were what? Dead. We are dead in what? In our trespasses and in our sin. And so what, what is our trespasses? The word trespasses means this, false steps. And involving of going beyond the boundary which God has set for us. And just continually walking. This continually trespass. And we continue to trespass the things of God. I may go through this whole water there, so you might have to go get me another one. And so we're dead in our trespasses. We are dead in our sin, the word of God tells us. The word sin, he gives us two ways that we're dead. We're dead in our trespasses, the ongoing involvement of crossing over God's barriers that he has set up in place for us. And then the next word he says we're dead in, we're dead in our sin. The ongoing, missing the mark that God has for us. The ongoing mark that God has for us is holiness. We see that in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. He says, be holy for I am holy. So there's this call of holiness that's on our lives that we cannot accomplish. We saw that in the first chapter. Right? In chapter 1, we looked at that. So we're dead, first and foremost. You are a dead man apart from Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to think of this for a moment. What can dead people do? Nothing. Dead people can do nothing. Remember that's from the passage is what we're going to get to in a few moments. So dead people can do nothing. A, a dead man, if you come and there's a dead person in the front of this auditorium, in this sanctuary, there's no way he's going to raise to life, is there? There's nothing. There's nothing that he can conjure up in himself to do anything. And so God, through Paul, tells us we are dead people. We could do nothing. And yet I think there's this thing because we can uh, actually do things. It's like, like we, we can walk and we can talk and we can play basketball and we can do all these things. And so the, the Satan tricks us to think, well, you're not really dead. Because there's still some activity going on. But what he's saying to us is in our spiritual lives, we are dead. We can do nothing. 
And so being dead then shows us our next condition. Our next condition is that we are slaves. Because we are dead, we have to be enslaved to something else, the word tells us. You were dead in your trespasses and in your sins, which you once walked. So even in our deadness, we're still slaves to something else. We're slaves to what he's going to tell us is we are slaves to who? The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work at disobedience. So we are dead in our trespasses and our sins, and we're enslaved to Satan. We will always, apart from Jesus Christ, go on and on and on and on to sin. Because we're enslaved to him. Like we are enslaved to sin. That, that's what happened at the garden. In the garden, Adam and Eve ate of the tree. They disobeyed God. And in that moment, they became enslaved to disobedience because they heard the promise of the serpent rather than the promise of God. And so because of their sin, the theological word is our sin nature. All of us are born into sin. We don't sin and become sinners. We sin because we are already sinners. I mean, I could bring you Tennyson and Cedar in here and show you that. I didn't teach them how to sin. Anyone teach your kids how to sin? Like, man, they just kind of right out the gate kind of went for it, didn't they? How come? Because they were already enslaved because of their sin nature being born into sin because of what Adam and Eve did in the garden. And their tendency, our tendency is to go on sinning. We sin because we are already sinners. Because we're enslaved to the one that is unrighteous rather than enslaved to the one that is righteous. And then he says this. That's our condition we're dead or enslaved and this one is the terrifying one to me it says among you all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were what by nature children of wrath so our condition because we're dead in our trespasses and we on keep on going in our sin we are slave to sin now there's this thing called there's this condemnation that we in of ourselves are condemned to the wrath of god like man that is terrifying is it not like everyone it says all of us I'll give you a little Greek lesson. The word all, even in English, means all. It means everybody. There's no exclusion from that word. All of us, all of mankind, are dead in our trespasses, enslaved to Satan, and therefore condemned to God's wrath. Is anyone scared of that in the room? And my great fear for us is, as believers, we forget the wrath of God. But God's wrath is going to be poured out 
on all of those who still are enslaved to sin and are dead in their trespasses. That, that's their outcome. Their outcome is lost people will be to stand before a holy God and God will pour out all of his wrath on them. Is that not terrifying to anyone? Which he's going to get to verse 10 in a moment. He's going to get to verse 10. And so that's our condition. As man, our condition before Christ is we're dead in our trespasses. We can do nothing. There's nothing that you have done to get your salvation. God's word tells us that. You were dead. Apart from Jesus Christ doing anything, you would still be dead. That's what God's word says. And you'd be condemned to God's wrath. Two of the sweetest words in all of God's Bible, in my opinion, in this passage, are here in verse 4. So he sets it up. This is who you are. This is what you'll continue to do. And this is what will happen to you. Like, thank God Paul doesn't stop there, right? Thank God that Paul didn't allow, uh, God didn't allow Paul to stop his pen at verse 3 and period. And move on. And that's where the letter ended. Like, could you imagine if this is where the letter ended in Ephesians? Hey, your children are wrath. You're going to die. God's wrath is going to be poured out on you. Have a good day. My great fear, though, is for some of us as believers, this is where the period ends for us. Like, I don't think we would say that. But our lives live that, do they not? Because if we really believe this, then we're going to have to believe in verses 4 through 10. But so often the church stops at verse 3. We just bring condemnation onto people. We want to sit on our high horses and condemn the world for being the world. Well, the world's going to be the world because they're what? They're enslaved to sin. They will sin. And so we, the church, wants to stop there. Now, we would never say that. Would we? But do we not live that way? But I want us to use these two words to convict us, to challenge us, to motivate us, to spur us on. Here's the two words. But God. But God, but God, it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with you being children of wrath. It doesn't end with you being enslaved to sin. It doesn't end with you being dead in your trespasses, in your sin. But God, but God, what? What did God do? What has God done, he tells us. But God, being what? Rich. We looked at that word a few weeks ago. It's this ongoing lavishing of his gifts to us. It's this ongoing pouring out of all that he has on top of us. He lavishes his what to us? His riches to us. And what are his riches in this passage? Four things. He first says this. He pours out his great riches in what? Mercy. The first thing that God pours out on us while we're dead in our trespasses and our sins and condemned to wrath is his mercy. And what is mercy? Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And he just told us what we do deserve. We deserve God's wrath. But God being rich in his mercy, 
Rich in his compassion, rich in what these next three words are, he pours it out. He pours out his mercy onto us. And how does he pour that mercy onto us? It says, because of what? His great love. So his mercy is poured out on us through his great love for us. He tells us in John chapter 15 that this is love, that I would lay my life down for you. Like love is this, that he sacrificed all that he had, that God sacrificed his only son for you and for me. That's love. So God being rich in mercy, abounding in love, does what? He then says this, his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. We were dead. Catch that. We were dead. Remember when we started off in the passage, dead people do what? They sit there and do nothing. They don't pursue God. They don't cry out to God. They don't run to God. They sit dead in a casket. And while we were yet still dead, God poured out his mercy on us and his love on us and his love and mercy, then what? It makes us alive. Like it's because of him pursuing us and pouring out his mercy and his love onto us that we become alive. The word is we are regenerated. Not because of you or me, but because of God's great mercy and his abounding love. He does spiritual CPR onto us. Like you were dead, and he came along, and he saw you, and he took those paddles out, rubbed them together, and, and you came alive. That's what he says. God's mercy and his love made you alive. And in that moment of coming alive, you regenerated. And then he says this. great love which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved so he pours out his mercy on us he gives his love to us and then it says he shows us his grace to us we grace is simply this getting what we don't deserve Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. What we do deserve is what? Death. Romans tells us that. For the wages of sin is what? Death. So we deserve death. We deserve God's wrath. But his, his, his mercy keeps us from that. And then his love pushes us to his, what? His grace. And his grace is being made alive. With Christ Jesus. By grace, you have been what? Saved. God's mercy, God's love, God's grace pushes us to salvation. Those three things equal being saved. And in being saved, we're now seated at the right hand of God the Father with Jesus Christ. What has God done? God has what? He's made us alive. 
You and I did not make ourselves alive. We just saw that in the passage. God, how he did it was his mercy, his love, his grace, his kindness. And out of those four things, you put those in a blender. And what do you get? You get being made alive. Like wherever you were on the day of your conversion, there's something that happened in you that you were dead in that moment. God breathed life into you. And in the moment God breathing life into you, he awoken your eyes to see him for who he was, and then you placed your hope and faith and trust into him. But God caused you to do that. You did not cause yourself to do that. Do we see that? Like you're not here because you're good. You're not here because you made a good decision. You're not here because, man, there, you just had this great day and you came forward on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday or whenever it was. No, God had a plan for your life to save you and to redeem you and to call you from death to life. And you woke up and you placed your faith and trust in him and you became alive. Do we see that? It's nothing that you did to be here saved today. I can't say that enough. You did not save yourselves. I did not save myself. Christ did it for me through the work of God's great redeeming love, grace, and kindness. <clears throat> he saves us, and now he seats us with Christ. That, that term there in the text means presently. Not, not what's going to come. We can read this verse and think, oh, I'm going to sit next to Jesus in the heavenly places. No, the Greek says, you and I, when we come to know Christ and we are awakened from deadness to life and God saves us, he in that moment places us in the heavenly places next to Christ Jesus. We don't have to wait to get to heaven. This is not an ER waiting room. We're not in a waiting room waiting to get somewhere. We're already where God has placed us. How come we don't live that way? We don't need to live as if we're waiting for something. We have all that God lavishes on us here and now. Let's live like that. That's what Paul says to us in Ephesians chapter 2. You are already sitting in the heavenly places. I love what this one writer says. He says it this way. We are too dead to be the source of our salvation. We are too weak to be the maintainers of our salvation. We are too finite to be the eternal stewards of our salvation. The magnitude and the magnificence of what our salvation involves indicates that it must be entirely a gift of God's grace. Do you catch what the man is saying? We're too dead to be the source of it. Like, I can't make myself saved. Which means I can't make anyone else saved. Which means there's got to be a source of power greater than myself that does the saving, amen? We're too weak to maintain our salvation. We can't make ourselves ongoing saved. We must be dependent on a source greater than ourselves. That's what we call our quiet time. That's the reason we get up in the morning and we cry out to God so God will be the source to maintain our salvation. I can't maintain my salvation. I can't do it. 
there's not enough good works for me to do to maintain my salvation. We won't steward our salvation well, that's for sure. I mean, we won't take real good care of it. How do I know that? We keep on sinning. I guess I'm the only one in the room. Okay. Sometimes this can be a very lonely place right here. So all those things indicate there must be a God that's given us a great gift of salvation. And the beautiful thing is he's given us the gift of salvation, but he's the one that ensures the gift keeps on being given to us. Like, I'm glad he's not like I am with my kids. I give them a toy, and within the first five minutes, they destroy it. Like, he gives us the gift, and then he comes around us and empowers us to really care for the gift. It's amazing. And so what are we to do with our nature in verses 1 through 3? And what are we to do with God's compassion? Like, if you're a believer here, you are verses 1 and 2 and 3, but you've experienced verses 4 through 7, have you not? And so what are we to do? As believers, he tells us. Is it just me or is it getting hot? He tells us in verses 8, 9, and 10. He reminds us, hey, remember, for grace you've been saved through faith. For you've been saved by God's grace through faith. And this is not of your own doing. Catch that in the passage. You did not save yourself. You did not give yourself the gift of salvation. He says it this way. You did not even give yourself the gift of faith. That's what he says. That's what he's pertaining to. That's what those words are pertaining to. For grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. What is not of your own doing? The faith part isn't on your own doing. We can read that and think, oh, he's talking about the salvation part. He is. But the thing that gets gets us saved is our faith. And he's saying, your salvation isn't yours, but how you get it isn't even yours. The faith has been given to you as a gift of God. So it's by faith you've been saved, not of your own doing. And this is not of your own doing, but it's what? A gift of God. Think of those few words. He gave us the greatest gift He could give to us his son, Jesus. His son, Jesus, is the thing that saved us. That is a marvelous gift that he's given to you and to me. The gift of God. He didn't have to do that. Like, that's not a requirement of God. Like, God isn't under obligation to give you this gift. Or it wouldn't be a gift, would it? Like, eh, wives... Any wife in here want flowers out of obligation? Like, I got you these, Jenny. They just told me to do it. I don't think that'd go over too well in my house, would it? But that's often how we think, that God just, he just had to give it to us. No, it's a gift. And he did it freely, and he did it lovingly, and he gave it compassionately, and he did it gracefully, and he, man, he gave it to us gift of God 
How come it's a gift of God? He tells us it's a gift of God, not as a result of man. How come? So that no one would boast. Like we got nothing to boast in here today. Nothing. Like you've got nothing. If you're saved and you're like plowing yourself on the back, man, I'm so glad that day that I turned my will and my life over to God and I walked the aisle and I and I and I, you've missed it. You didn't do any of it. It was a gift of God so that you couldn't boast, so that you would boast about him. This is all to boast about him. Your salvation pushes you to give him the glory, not to give yourself the glory, because you didn't do it. And how come he gave us this gift and bestowed it upon us so that we wouldn't boast? Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. Catch that word. Think about all the things that God has created. Everything. Like some of the prettiest places for me is, I don't know why it's this way, but going to the beach at sunset or sunrise, it is breathtakingly beautiful. Going to the mountains, it's just an overlooking the mountains. It's just beautiful. Uh, just one flower at spring, it's just beautiful. Like whatever it is that captures your affections for God and his creation, think about that. But here's the deal. That's not God's workmanship. Like the sunset at the beach isn't God's workmanship. The mountains aren't his workmanship. Yes, he created all those. But the word workmanship says this. It means this. It's his masterpiece. It's the best thing that God created. And you and I are his masterpiece. That's why he did it. That's the reason he bestowed his grace onto us, his kindness, his love, so that we, his masterpiece, would come back into relationship and fellowship with God Almighty. That's the reason you're saved. You are his workmanship. It's this way. Whatever the prettiest piece of art you have, do you not put that over your mantle so that when people walk in, they see that first? Well, that's what Paul's saying. You and I are the greatest display of God's craftsmanship, his creativity. We are his workmanship. So we're the best of the best of the best of all of creation.
so I beg the question, what are the good works? What has God created you for? What has God saved you for? Not saved you from. I hope you know where you've been saved from. But what has God saved you for? What are the good works that God has for you? I guarantee this. It has everything to do with verses 1 and 3. It's to remind other people of where they come from and where they're going. Does he not tell us that in the Great Commission? Go into the world and proclaim my truth and baptize people, teaching them what I've taught you. What has he taught you? He's taught you about your salvation. That's the good works that God has prepared for us. And so I beg the question, church. Are we doing the good works that God has prepared us for? You see, we can get caught up in these verses, chapter 1 and 2, and get caught up with the words predestined and foreknowledge and all those things that would keep us from saying, well... Well, I mean, I, don't, I mean, God's already got the plan. I don't need to do anything. Like if we just get hung up in those words in these first chapter and a half, we won't do verse 10. I, I say it this way. Who cares who he's chosen and who cares who he's predestined? Oh, cricket's good. Like that doesn't exclude me from doing the good works of taking the gospel message to all the world and letting God call sinners from death to life. But he wants to use my mouth, your mouth, the church's mouth, to do the calling. So we don't need to get caught up in those words. What we need to get caught up is in our salvation, what God has done for us, and then calls us to go and take that message to the rest of the world. See, what happened this week on February 14th shares with me that the work is not done of taking the gospel message to every man, woman, and child so that God can call dead people to life. I don't know this to be true, but I wonder if that boy in that school ever heard of the gospel message of love. I wonder And I wonder who's next. Because there's going to be a next, is there not? There's going to be another tragedy. And what if the good works were for us to take the loving gospel message to the world? So that those who are dead in their trespasses and walk in disobedience will be made alive in Christ and in repentance turn to God and through turning to God not do what they were bound to do in being enslaved to Satan. But it will take us, the church, taking the good news to every man, woman, and child repeatedly to say to them, man, there is a God that's full of mercy, that's full of love, that's full of grace, that's full of kindness, that wants to awaken your dead heart to life and give you eternity with him forever and ever and ever. That's the good works. And so in closing, I would ask us first these three things this morning. 
as Jared comes to play, I want to ask you this question first. Would you, in this moment, remember what you've been saved from? You are children of wrath. You've been saved from that. Let us be reminded of that for just a few moments this morning. Next, I'd ask you this. Would you revere the one who saved you? Like you have been saved through grace, through faith, by God and God alone, not of your own works. Let's worship that God in these closing moments. And the next thing I'd ask, and the last thing would be this. Let us respond to grace with good works. Let's remember where we come from, apart from Jesus, where we're headed apart from Jesus. Let's worship the one who redeems us and saves us. And let's respond with good works. May Christ use us. God, we were all dead in our trespasses and our sins. We all lay dead on the side of the road. And you came and you found us. You sought us while we were yet sinners and you revived us. You woke in our dead hearts alive and gave us life through faith. And apart from that, each and every one of us would be doomed to your wrath. Not so today, because of your work, because of your compassion, because of your mercy, your grace, your kindness, your love. And God, I pray that we would respond with good works works that you've had prepared from the beginning of time for each one of us individually for each one of us as a family and God ultimately for each one of us the church let us do good works we are your masterpiece thanks for your saving grace as we sang just a few moments ago hellbound race I was determined to run and yet you stepped in I'm grateful for your mercy your kindness your love your faith the saving faith that I no longer am dead but I'm made alive in Christ Jesus I have hope we have hope and guide us. I pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Would you guys stand this morning?